Crimson Tower Studios. Welcome to the Old World Podcast, the unofficial podcast for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay and the original podcast to bring both discussion and actual play in 4th edition. I'm one of your hosts, Lance, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Matt. Steve was unfortunately unable to join us tonight, but alas, the show must go on. So, Matt, how you doing? I'm doing well. Excited to get back into some Warhammer 4th edition core rulebook discussion. Uh, it's been too long. I'm really excited to finish this up. Some of yes. my favorite parts we're going to talk about tonight. Oh, uh, mine, so. mine too. Yeah, for We're sure. going to talk about things that I'm going to include in every RPG that I play, regardless of whether it's Warhammer or not. Agreed, agreed. So uh, before we dive into all that, let's do our obligatory what have you been up to with gaming. Uh, indeed. So I'm just going to start my own new podcast right now. It's called <laughs> the Matt Loves Red Dead Redemption 2 podcast. Man. And all I do is talk about how much I love Red Dead Redemption 2. It's you and excellent. everybody else, everybody at work is talking about this yep. game and how awesome it is. So Yep. So far, it has deserved every bit of praise it's gotten. I haven't found really anything that I haven't loved about it. You it's know, that good. I haven't even seen any gameplay of it, even online. Oh, I just, so I might, beautiful. you might have to show me that before I leave. Yeah. But yeah, um, everybody, everybody is yeah. talking about this game and how good it is. I have been a uh, Rockstar Games fanboy for years now, years and years now, and they deserve every bit of praise they get. I'm telling you, they, they put so much work, so much time into these games. I mean, they started developing Red Dead Redemption 2 before the first one was even finished, and that was almost a decade ago. So, so like Final Fantasy fifteen, kind of. Yeah. Oh, that I they're similar for sure. Right. In the, in the scope of you right. know how, how big they are, how much time it, it's taken to put it together. It's, so is it open world? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Open that's, world. That's set a in big thing nowadays. Eighteen ninety nine. That's yep. cool. So the script. There's so many lines of dialogue. The script. If it were all printed and stacked, it would be over eight feet tall. Oh my gosh. Over half a million lines of dialogue. Basically, every person in the entire world you can have an interaction with, speak to, they may ask nice. you to do something. It's remarkable. A lot of my friends at work said they had to like delete a lot of stuff off their PlayStations oh, yeah. in order to fit it. Yes. Yeah. was talking to my daughter right before I went out and bought it, before I went and picked it up. I was like, kid, we got to delete some stuff. So we went through, took out, cleared enough space. And then the next day, she you know, came in and told me, she's like, dad, I went and deleted more, more things off the Xbox so you could have Uh-oh. more space. Oh. You're such a sweetie. It's like, I love you, honey. <laughs> and no, you can't watch me play this game. Because <laughs> right. Oh, right. Yeah. There's actually parts that I will, like, the hunting in the game is totally revamped, and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So you, in the first one, if you saw a deer, you could just chase it down, shoot it with an arrow or with a gun, go harvest its its pelt and its you right. know, food from it or whatever, and you'd be done. In this one, you have to study the animal. Or you can study the animal. If you do, it'll tell you how to more appropriately kill it. You have to track it. Mm -hmm. And depending on how its life has gone so far, it may start out as having a poor quality pelt, which you'll only know if you study it. If it has a good quality pelt or a perfect pelt, if depending on how you kill it, that'll damage it. So if I shoot it with a shotgun, it's going to go from perfect to poor. Nice. Whereas if I track it and I get like the kill shot, you know, the the shot right through its chest or whatever with a, a high-quality arrow, then it's a perfect pelt. And when you skin an animal, it used to be just this quick, you know, two-second mm-hmm. little cutscene. Now it shows you actually skinning that animal. And there's over 200 types of 
wow. different animals in the game. At one point, we're not going to be able to tell real life from games, yeah. man. It's getting there. It's crazy. So I guess I can end my rant right now. But that, no, that's that's that, awesome. That has my currently has my attention to where like I'm having Red Dead Dreams. Nice. You know how that goes, right? And I imagine that for the months to come, I don't anticipate being done with this game until I've got about maybe 200 hours into it. Right. Right, right. now, I'm at like 20. It's so good. So many people talked about it that I probably will try to pick it up at some point just to, you know. Yeah. So. Just to see what all the right. hubbub is about. It's worth it. I'll tell you that for sure. Well, I have been to a lot of Wuffer Up, uh, but I haven't had a lot of time to do playing. I've been making some characters and uh, doing some stuff with that. I did a little bit of play, but I've started some Kingdom Hearts because mm. uh, Kingdom Hearts 3 is coming out. So I never got into Kingdom Hearts before. And everybody I ever talked to that played it says it's it's amazing. And of yeah. course, as a Final Fantasy fan, it's basically like a yeah. combination of Final Fantasy and Disney. And yeah. and so far, I'm really liking it. And it's it's clean enough that my daughter can watch me play For sure. this. And so she gets all excited. I was so yeah, proud I'm of her. Sure She's she... like, take out its legs, Daddy. It'll fall down and you can reach it. And I'm like, oh. That just warms your heart right there. <laughs> it does. As a father, like you, I'm, I, you I'm, can't ask for more than I'm that. I'm teaching you how to take out... <laughs> And fights like that's right. Go for the legs. Anyway, yeah. So just wait until she repeats that in school. Oh, oh nowadays she sees, she man, sees like a fight it. on the playground. And she's like, "Take out its legs!" <laughs> no, sweetie, no, stop. Right. So with that, let's move on. So news and announcements. This is a part of the show where we keep you up to date on Wufferup and related news. So we scour the web for juicy leaks and bits to satiate your Wufferup hunger. Uh, we don't have like a ton because we're kind of waiting for the big drops. But what we do know, it did come from Cubicle 7. That's right. So the core rulebook is shipping, and a lot of people have already got their copies. I'm so In sad. Fact, right. We, we unfortunately, alas, have not gotten ours yet. However, if you go on Twitter and if you follow anybody who is big into WFRP, you'll see many a picture of people holding their, their right. rulebooks and talking about how great they look and how quality of a product it is which doesn't come as any surprise we've known that for a while now right right man i can't wait to get in my hands yeah. i want it now so one of the downsides of living in the u.s i'm gonna yeah. need to talk to those cubicle seven guys and be like hey man we need how can we get something just shipped direct like, right <laughs> like the, the next when that starter set comes uh, we need it shipped direct how much money do we got to pay so we don't have to wait an extra <laughs> month to get our hands on that right so yeah, we'll but, work on that. But it looks it looks amazing, which we knew it was anyway, yeah. having the preview and everything. Yeah. But. So as always, you can find out more information about this and other things on Cubicle 7's website, which is www.cubicle7.co.uk. All right. So let's get into the main topic, the meat of our show, so to speak. This is part three of our three-part series where we do a full review of the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4th Edition rulebook. So, Old Worlders, join us tonight as we review, give our opinions, and most likely miscast our spells as we complete our review into the forbidden lores housed in the sacred tome that is Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4th Edition. Before we get started, though, we do need to start with a small correction from our last show. And it's not so much a correction as just kind of an omission, but... On bleeding, we talked extensively about bleeding, how you have a 10% chance to die every round from the bleeding condition. And while this is true when you're unconscious, when you're not unconscious, when you're still you know, up and kicking, so to speak, you just lose one wound every round. So bleeding still is an ultimate death sentence, but right. 
but the 10% chance to die thing is once you're unconscious. So basically you go down to zero wounds, you get unconscious, then you start to touch every round to die. If you or I or anybody in real life was unconscious and bleeding, <laughs> right. you'd basically be in that same boat. A very heated debate has came up over this topic. Hotly contested I over mean, whether this is broken, if this breaks the entire system or not. What are your thoughts, Lance? Uh, okay, so the biggest uh, discussion I've seen on this has been on the Strike to Stun forums, where essentially some believe that bleeding is, is a broken rule because you get bleeding and it's a death sentence. The only way to really stop bleeding is through a heal test or the heal skill. You can apply bandages, but technically, according to rules as written, you need the heal skill to effectively use them. So bleeding, the way the rules are written, is you you lose a wound until you're unconscious and then you basically keep testing and if you have a 10% to die. And if you right. have multiple bleeding conditions, like we said, you got five bleeding conditions, you have a 50% chance to die every yeah. round, right? right? So I I definitely understand where they're coming from. I think it was Captain Zat is the original poster on that one. And he has some good points, but there's a lot of back and forth on this. The, the short version is, okay, most characters, the majority of characters you're going to create in this system using random creation are not going to have access to the heal skill. And any fight has the potential to get you a critical. You just got to roll double. Not not even a fight necessarily. You could be just traveling and climbing up a steep incline and you could potentially fall and, right. and, and cut yourself and get a bleeding condition. Right. So a bleeding condition could, or hey, you just got a GM that doesn't like you. They could assign you a bleeding condition yeah. for a random reason. And, and they're saying, hey, this is a death sentence. If nobody in your party has a heal skill, you're dead. There's no way you're going to make it back to civilization and stuff. And if you take a very literal, straightforward in, uh, interpretation of the rules as written, that's not necessarily an unfair statement. There's no way to stop the bleeding with the, the rules as written, and therefore you will die. So they're, they're not wrong, right? So... The arguments on the other side as well. It's a it's a grim and perilous setting. This is you know Warhammer. You know right. and, and that's that seems like a almost like a cop out though, right? You could say that about anything. Like oh well, you miscast this and you summon a demon and you're out dead. Oh well, it's grim and perilous. So sorry, <laughs> right? That you spent three hours rolling these characters and months of play getting them how you like them and other well, dead now. Right. Sorry. Right. But I think part of it, right. It's that contract. And we haven't talked about this and some of our GM advice. We'll talk about this, but there's a player yeah. contract, right? A player For GM sure. contract. And so when my players come to the table, the expectation is, Hey, this is Warhammer. This isn't Star Wars. This isn't D and D. This isn't my little pony. Yeah. This is Warhammer. So guess what? There is a chance in every tiny little fight that you're going to get a critical, and that critical is going to be bad, and that miscast might turn sideways, and yeah, you might summon a demon, and if you can't handle it, you die. Yeah, like that's a reality. Half of the fun in this system is how bad did your character die before you have to roll a new character. Yeah. So I mean, that's the expectation. I think um, basic GM advice. One of the things is, hey, I don't know. I let the dice fall where they may most of the sure. times. I just try really hard to put my players in situations where they have an opportunity, an option that's obvious to them where they can avoid this fight or they can try to avoid this fight or they can use strategy to try to get an upper hand or whatever. I, I'm not going to just automatically put you in a no-win situation. Sure. So I, I, we're getting a little off topic from bleeding here. 
So how do you fix this, right? So is the rule broken? I guess, and we've talked about this a little bit. What are your thoughts on this, man? Do you think bleeding is a broken rule? Well, I suppose as it's written, I could see the argument for it being broken. However, it's also stated in the rule book that if there's a rule that you don't like or a rule that you don't think is playing out the way you want it to, or more importantly, and most importantly, as far as I'm concerned, if you have a player at the table who's not having fun because they're bleeding to death, and you you know they're not they're not into it right. If mm-hmm. my character was bleeding to death, I'd be like, let the blood flow. <laughs> right. I can't wait to start something new. But if you if you have a player who's not feeling that way, just change it. Right, right. They 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 hammer that home in the GM section mm-hmm. in the beginning of the rule book that if you're not having fun, just fix it. So a couple other things. I find it incredibly hard to believe that your average person in Warhammer doesn't know how to use a bandage. Okay, my youngest daughter is three years old, right. and she came up to me the other day and said, Dad, I put a Band-Aid on. I realized that a, a toddler's cut is different than getting your arm cut open. Right. But I feel like no matter what, you should be able to have some function of how a bandage works. Right. So, But even then, if your character doesn't, then as a GM, make it interesting. Okay? Mm-hmm. So like, if you've got a character who has a really bad cut, let them bandage it themselves but if they fail the test to do it, or if they don't get enough success levels, then they get an infection in it. Yes. So that adds a whole other level of intrigue to the story, that it's not just like, your character's bleeding, your character's bleeding, your character's bleeding, dead. But Matt, you, the rules for bandages specifically state you have to use a, a heal skill, and a heal skill is an advanced skill and not a basic skill. What if I don't have the heal skill? So this comes back to your play style, right? Mm-hmm. My play style is, as a GM, is super relaxed. And if it got to the point where, again, if my, my player's not having fun with it, then I would just house rule it. Just house rule it. Fix it yourself. It's easy for me to say that because that's the kind of GM that I am. Mm-hmm. But I totally understand that there are people who follow this book to a T, that this book is gospel when it comes to this world. And if it's not in the book, then it can't happen. Again, that's that's just me, but it seems like such an easy fix. I feel, I find that so hard to believe. Like, man, and this is because this is not a rules light system, right? We've talked yeah. about this before. It's medium crunch, and I have never ever heard or seen or participated in any role playing game where the rules are followed one hundred percent. Right. And don't get me wrong. From a, like a development standpoint, I, I'll I'll say this: bleeding, I think, is fine. I think what needed to happen is one sentence where they allow either an endurance test, you know, that you could perform every so often to have maybe bleeding stop spontaneously or to remove a bleeding condition. Yeah. Or um, the use of bandages by a non-trained person. Yeah. You know, where it don't have the the heal skill, even on a success, if it's less than five success levels, then you get an infection. So well, allow the, the immediate problem to be fixed and then do something interesting yeah. with it to your have point. It, have it become a different problem. Right. If, if you've ever watched any of like the outdoor survival shows on mm-hmm. Discovery Channel or History Channel, you don't even need a bandage, right? If you cut yourself, you could pack it with dirt right. or mud and it would stop the bleeding. That's not to say you're not opening yourself up to a world of right. potential you know, hazards that way or infection or disease or something. But everybody knows how to stop bleeding. Even so small it, cut, it's one thing, but if it's a huge, you know, if you, right. your arm is severed, then yeah, you're probably going to die. Even a beggar or a farmer in the old world has dealt with it. There's a common knowledge to know, oh, I need to apply pressure. 
Yeah. So I don't want to spend like forever discussing this because, I mean, we've already discussed it quite a bit or whatever, but it was a very interesting discussion. And I think this kind of goes to one of the tenets that we've been talking about, right? No system out there is going to be perfect. This is one where, yeah, I agree. I wish there would have maybe been one or two sentences more to like canonize, for lack of a better word, the way to handle this. But I think it's an easy and yeah. it's an easy thing as yep. a GM. And then if you guys don't like the way it is, then you can house really your table or do something else. Or, hey, guess what? My I guarantee you, after this discussion, my characters, one of the first things they're going to look at when spending their yeah. experience is, hey, we're in town now. Can I find someone to teach me heal? Right. I need one advance in the heal <laughs> skill so that I don't have to deal with this potential problem because I don't know. But it's, So that's, that is a, another great point as... A GM for this game, or any game for that matter, you have to have a broad understanding of how the system works. Oh, sure. You don't need to know every, you know, the exact stats of every spell or of every trait or of every talent. Those things you can sort of look up. Right. But if it's if this is that significant, if bleeding is something that could kill any character at any time, or if you had a whole party that was out in the woods, they all had a bleeding skill, just close the book and roll up new characters then when you're doing character creation, you need to tell your party, your players, hey, we're not leaving this table until one of you has a heal skill. And if one of you doesn't have a heal skill, then know that your time is limited. Yeah. Like if you are if you are gonna play the game to the the rules that strictly, then make your players aware. Right. Because I don't expect my players to know this book even 10% as well as I do. No, but every GM should know the, the statuses, right? Right. Like fatigued, bleeding, right? Yeah. Like you should have an idea and realize how those affect gameplay. And yeah. Well, I think I think we've talked this this bleeding through. <laughs> I mean, I think I've rolled my 10%, man. So <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Yeah, I, I, I think it's definitely something that's worth discussion. Because sure. it is it is left a little more ambiguous than it probably should be. Um, should have been in the rules, but at the same time, it's it's not a deal breaker for me. Yeah. So I mean, they have a point, but at the end of the day, like it's such an easy fix, and I'm not worried about it. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's move on to our actual <laughs> rest of our show topic. Indeed. Then. Let's pick up where we left off with the review of our of the fourth edition rulebook. Absolutely. And this, I know, I'm so excited to talk about this, but the Between Adventures is where oh. we left off. And and take us in, Matt. Yeah, this is this Between Adventures is easily one of my favorite additions uh, to this system. And honestly, I intend to use some form of this in every, every campaign that I run from now on. Like, I, I'm getting ready to do a small campaign, Star Wars campaign, with a couple of my buddies. I'm already brainstorming how I can incorporate these rules into that system because it's great. So essentially what the Between Adventures section talks about are the things that happen in between sessions, right? So if you're, or in, not necessarily sessions, right? Because one session might pick up directly where the last left off with mm-hmm. your players. Right, right. But more about what's happening in between your adventures, right? So you go to a goblin tower, for example, and right. recover evidence of a person's demise when you get back from that it's not likely that the next adventure is going to spring right up from there there's probably going to be days or weeks or months or potentially even years that take place right in between your adventures so what is your character doing during that time you could assume that it's just your day-to-day life but what the between adventures portion talks about are 
the interesting things that happen during that time. And instead of doing a whole session about you bruising through town and doing your daily deeds, this summarizes or, or a it. shopping trip or something. Or shop, yeah, shopping trip. And, but and to be fair, like some of those types of interactions are interesting, right? Like to do a shopping, that could be a lot of fun. It could yeah. just be a slapstick fun part of your role playing. This isn't saying you take that out. In fact, there are sections in this chapter that talk about if this is particularly fun, role play it out. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, and I don't want people to get the, the thought process that these rules are for just when... They, re- they don't replace those right, entertaining se- right. sessions that you would have. Right. And then another thing too, though, but you can be in this epic quest adventure to take down chaos and have hardly any breathing time between your adventures or linking one adventure to the next. But it doesn't mean that there isn't a week or two that you can squeeze in every now and then. You're, you're at town. You need to heal. Hey, the rules in this book, you sometimes need to heal for a month before you can get really back out there. Yeah. Hey, what is what the rest of your party? What? what yeah. yeah, what's going on during that time frame? I mean, a lot of times you just hand wave it as a GM, but why? This is so fun. Yep. So, and of course there's, you know... We need a little jingle for whenever I talk about things that Matt loves. So there's tables in here, tables that you roll on to generate random events. This actually reminds me of Gloomhaven, which I've talked about a while ago. Mm -hmm. And every time that you would return back to town to do whatever you're doing, to buy things, to uh, visit different locations, you'd always draw a card out of the, the city deck or the town deck. It was city deck. And on that card, it would have a short paragraph about some event that happened or something and then you have an option of choosing what you want to do right and based on that what you how you choose it could give you a new quest it could do something else it's just similar to this so the way in between adventures works is the first thing you do is you roll an event and on the table there are 31 different events that can happen sometimes it it may be in relation to the weather right so there may be nice weather uh there may be inclement weather There may be a festival that comes through town. There may be somebody cracking down on counterfeit money. There may be something magical that happens. So essentially you roll on this table and then role role play through the whatever it comes up as on the event. Right. And And every player does this, right? Every player gets to roll on this table. So you could have this interesting combination of things, it should be pretty unlikely that you have the same sort of in-between session thing happen. Correct. Every time. Yep. Uh, and on that table, you're rolling a D100. There's only a 3% chance of nothing happens. So it can happen that things just go as they normally would, but more likely than not, much more likely than not, that something interesting is going to go down. Right, right. And, and But if you got like three or four players, I mean, that's still three or four rolls on the table. So right. stuff is going to happen. Yeah. Yep. Could be... Like I said, I said a couple already, but there may be a, a disease that's right. running through the town that you may contract or you may have your purse cut and stolen and now you have half the money that you expected to have. So there's a lot. There's a lot of variety and a lot of interesting things that can happen just with the events portion of it. And that leads us to... And that's to, just the start. That's just the start. <laughs> so in addition to rolling an event, each player can do uh, between one and three endeavors. So you always do one, but it's possible to do more. It's up to your GM based on how much time you're spending in between adventures. A day or a week, you probably only do one. But if it was a month in between, you could do several. Right. And I mean, the rules here, and I just saw this the other day, they technically limit it at three. Yeah, three is the max. Right. So in doing your endeavors, there's a bunch of different ones you can do that are specific, not only to your race. Specifically, elves have a specific 
duty that they must do as an endeavor just to be able to maintain their status, I suppose, within the the elf community. Right. Uh, in addition, if you are at a high enough level on your class, if you don't do a specific duty, then you drop one of your you drop one level on your class, which is significant. That can be a, a major setback. And it just goes in to show when you get to those higher levels, what kind of responsibilities you have as a being living within this world. Right. I think we've talked about this in the past. Some of those higher levels, I mean, when a priest gets to like level three, I think they're like in charge of an abbey or something. Yeah. You can't just ignore that. Right. Right. So it's just an interesting way to tie it. And it's not like, because I think you have to do the income endeavor. Yeah. Right. So it's not like you're getting nothing for your right. for your time that you spend doing this. Something interesting with the elf is, is if you're doing less than three, they don't, that isn't imposed on you. Oh, okay. Sure. All right. Next up, well, I want to talk about money to burn, which this is a somewhat hotly contested rule as well. And basically what this is saying is after you've gone through and bought anything that you want to buy in town, you then lose all of the money that you have that you have not protected via stashing it in a tree somewhere or uh, doing a banking endeavor, which makes sense. You know, if you, if you're spending an entire month in between sessions Think about how much money you and I spend in a given mm-hmm. month. Obviously, it's a different situation, but it doesn't just sit there, right? You have to you you buy food, you have to pay for housing, you have to buy clothes potentially, and it's best you know specifically says in here that what happened to the money? It well, it was spent, it was stolen, it was drank, you gambled it, you used it for repairs, you paid off debts, given as donations, all sorts of different things. Because that's what would actually happen if you earn a bunch of money. It doesn't just always sit there. You, it's going to go somewhere. Right. And as a GM, I'm asking my players, so what happened to all your money? Right. Because right. you, you're choosing not to do a banking endeavor. That's cool. Because a banking endeavor, I mean, in, it's one. Of, we're going to talk about endeavors in just a second, but it, there's a there's a couple options. You can like literally do an interest like kind of in a bank, or you can, like you said, hide it in a tree somewhere. So, I mean, it which, either... If you do that, you've got a 10% chance of it not being there when you go back to get it. <laughs> right. Which but I you get love. all of it back. If it is there, so right. man, but it also does some things too. It encourages you to like, like in D and D. One of the funny things is, is great. Our players are carrying around seven hundred pounds of gold with them all the time because, yeah. you know, what what are they going to do with it? We've raided the dragon's horde and bought the best armor and stuff. Oh, well, it's gone. Easy, done, move on. So great. Now there's this new thing I want to buy. Oh, you don't, you didn't decide. Didn't to invest save, your money. Didn't invest your yeah, money. Think, think about. Yeah, yeah. Think about. In real life, too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if, you, if you're sitting on a bunch of money, you're going to want to spend it. Yeah. And if you don't invest it or if you don't treat it properly with the respect it deserves, then next time you go to get it, it's gone. Right. This is an elegant little rule. That yeah, I think so, too. W- when I originally read it, I was like, I don't know about this. But now that I have a better understanding of the entire in-between sessions chapter, right. it makes total sense. And uh, it's it's great. And I, I think we were talking to TS about yeah. this. I think he wrote this specifically. Or, and then as a GM, it helps you. Like, yeah. like you're, you're essentially forcing your players to do something with right. this, right? I, and, I personally have run into the issue of over-rewarding my players with money. Right, and then I get right. to the point where I'm like, why the heck did I do that? Why did I give them this opportunity to sit on this this mountain of credits or gold or whatever? Right. And this solves that. Right? I mean, you can you can choose to save it or hide it, but if not, it's getting spent. Right. It also encourages them to to spend it on stuff, right? If if you're 
wanting to save up to get this amazing bow, for example, buy a cheaper bow. Like, think of it this way. You know what? My character is decided he's going to give like half of this gold to the local priest of more and yeah. half of it, you know, Boom, he's you get just, a blessing. Right. And then half of this, he's going to just, I'm going to stay at the nicest ends for the next three weeks. And but excellent. You just gave me as a GM session fodder. Yeah. Right. Oh, story hooks. Story Absolutely. Hook. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And because I know, oh man, that priest of more, there's so many ways you could right. go with it. Maybe the higher ups and the priest of more, like, where are you getting this money? And it causes this whole oh, thing yeah. to come down. Right. You just, you just don't know. There's so much there. Yeah. It's elegant. Yep. I really think. Yep. And generating story hooks and ways to adapt your story as a GM, I always look forward to that. Yes. So more so maybe than the endeavors, but rolling on the event chart, you may have an event that comes up that on the fly you could adapt your mm-hmm. session to go along with that. Right. So let's say that you got your coin purse stolen. Well, this random NPC that you run into later in the adventure isn't just some random person. It's mm-hmm. the guy who stole your purse. So now you've got another combat that can roll up. So as far as the general endeavors go, there's a lot of different stuff you can do. Banking is probably one of the more important ones if you're intending to save your money or stash your money. You can train an animal, which has some really interesting connotations too, whether it's uh, something that you want to, like a beast that you want to use there's in so combat many, or... Right. Dogs or carrier pigeons or... Yeah. There's a lot of different and options a sweet here. dog. Yeah, yeah. As part of a... As somebody in your party. Oh, mm-hmm. that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, commissioning an item to be made, consulting with an expert that could help uh, advance your... Like a storyline? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. You can craft things. You Crafting can ask for favors. Is, is cool. Sorry to interrupt here. Because no. They have said, and I, I don't forget who we were talking to about this, but there's more. There's more coming out. Expansions, they've already said this. In between session, there's going to be more endeavors. There's going to be more tables and charts. The impression I got from the discussions we've had is, now we have a, a book on the Sterland or Tablet Land, right? Right. We're going to have endeavors that are specific to those areas and stuff. I cannot wait. I cannot wait to like this crafting stuff. We're going to get crafting rules. We know that, right? So we're going to get more into that. They've already said that. Right. And I can't wait because this is, this is so cool. Just think about like, right, I have all this money. Instead of just sitting on it, that's not interesting. What if I commission to do this amazing sword? So now I'm a swordsman, yeah. but I got this sweet sword. That's known. Throughout right. the whole the whole town, right? All right. of the Reichland knows that you have the uh, Endbringer sword right. that was crafted and imbued with, right? You know, it's a, yeah, dark so power naming, of some sort. Right. Yeah. It's a, now it's a sword worthy of a name. Yeah. And again, as a GM, thank you. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> think about what the I famous swords it. in you know, Lord our, of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, yeah. or Game of Thrones, or right. World of Warcraft. Any of those, right? right. Those are swords that you know. And you could have one of those by craft or commissioning it to be made. Right. Even if it's not magical, it could still be epic. And we'll get into this too. There are item qualities that you can get out of that and stuff too. So, yeah. Other uh, endeavors you can do inventing, you can train, which is where that is the one that allows you to train in a skill outside of your career, which is another great way to, to get that. There's a lot of different stuff you can do. Then that brings us to the class endeavors, of which there are quite a few as well. So if you're a ranger or a warrior, you could do combat training. One of the ones I love is studying a mark, which is if you're a rogue, you can study, you know, follow that guy around, the person, the noble that you want to you wanna rob or you want to, you know, steal from. Follow them around, see what their habits are, see what their daily routine is like so that you 
are in a better position to go and rob them. I really enjoy all of this. I think it adds such a great layer of what's happening in between adventures. And tell you what, right now, Cubicle 7, we know you listen to this. You listen to all of our our content religiously. That's probably not the case. But if you are... (laughs) Listen to me right now. You give me a source book about in-between adventures, I will literally throw handfuls of cash at you. (laughs) Yes. Like Gen Con next year, you've got the Between Adventures source book. I will walk up to the booth and I will start throwing money at you until you give me that book. (laughs) I want it that bad. Yeah. I expect we're going to have several source books that will include this stuff in it. Um, you know, with every area, there's going to be specific to the area. I, I think it's going to be cool. One of my favorite here for uh, Burgers and Peasants is Forment Descent. Yeah. I, I just think of all the times where my players just want to do this anyway. Well, now I have a way for them to do it and it doesn't have to deroyal everything. It's like taking some of the stuff that like good GMs naturally kind of forment and putting it into a structured system that makes the players feel like they have a lot of player choice. Right. And and, they're informing the story instead of just hearing it from the GM. mm -hmm. It's so good. And then the GM can just take it. Yep. I love it. Yep. I'm sure after we've had a chance to actually incorporate that into play a little bit more, I look forward to what will inevitably be an episode of ours. Oh, yeah. Talking all about Between Adventures. Soon. Somewhere down the road. Yeah. Yeah. So as much as I love Endeavors, it's time to move on to my probably potentially my one of my favorite chapters in this book and that's religion and belief yeah uh, there's a lot in here there really is it seems like and th- this is the case with a lot of sections in this rule book they put so much into this th- i mean this could have been a source book in itself oh this yes. whole i mean this chapter they could have expanded a little bit made it an entire source book but it's in here which is great mm-hmm. i agree i agree so one of the things I would say uh, to someone that's new to, to Warhammer and everything, you know, besides whatever research you can do, if they're like really into it and want to like learn more about the world and stuff, besides obviously the section on the Reichland, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, this is a great section. You learn a lot about the background of the world and what is meaningful by looking at the religion and belief chapter. Obviously, it, it goes into the different gods. It even lists like like local gods of the Reichland, which I think is cool. So I'm hoping we get more of no that doubt. in source books as no well. Doubt. Yeah, but that's really cool. Uh, just because some a lot, a couple of these gods I hadn't ever heard of, and I've been in the Warhammer lore for for a long time. Years, yeah, yeah. Decades. And it's just you know things that I've missed and stuff. But yeah, and it talks about the chaos gods and then the major cults. It gives you a little bit about like even the Grand Conclave, which is essentially legitimizing certain religious cults over others and stuff. And and has a it's it's very interesting. I'm not going to dig into all that history or, or those little things. Just realize they have a list and they talk about the primary gods of the Empire too, and it. Gives gives you an idea. So like if you're trying to figure out what your character might care about, like when it comes to like a belief system or religious system, you can just check the first couple of pages of this. It's great stuff. This whole section where it talks about all the cults, um, cue the Matt's favorite things music, (laughs) a full solid single page about each of these cults. And if there's bullet points, it talks about the basics of it. Because again, this isn't stuff you're going to need to know a hundred percent every session. But when you need to know about the cult of Manan, for example, you've got it all right here. It's concise. It tells you all the, the information you're going to need to know about that cult specifically. Right. And, and again, if let's say that it is a situation where that's going to be a larger section of a story, because it's just a single page, boom, you print this out, copy it, hand it out to your players. They've got that information right, right there as well. And you're right. not having to 
scrub through multiple pages and it's not split up, you know, half on one page, half on the next. Right. This is, seems like a simple thing, but man, it is so convenient. And I love that about this book. Oh, I agree. I agree 100%. And it's it, the structure for each one is exactly the same. So when I'm looking at these, right. I see, you know, each one breaks down like where the seat of power is, who the head of the cult is, primary right. orders, popular holy books. Holy sites. Yeah. Like it gives all this stuff. And then it talks about the worshipers. It talks about, like you said, the holy sites. And then it talks about, and we're going to get into this a little more, penances and strictures, which is just, just awesome. You know, depending on the the god or the goddess, like you can see specifically like what matters, what matters to that believer. Like if if I'm gonna actually role play a belief system, a belief, I don't even necessarily have to be a priest or whatever. But let's just say I'm a devout Sigmarite. You know, I'm a soldier that believes in Sigmar. Well, hey, I know I can go in here. I could again print off that page and have it as a right. reference. And I could see the things that I care about, right? Is as a Sigmarite, I obey orders. I aid dwarf folk. I never do them harm. You yeah. know, these are things that as a role player, like boom, right there. I know, I know kind of it helps me be a better role play out my character. Right. And that's and that's not even getting into the mechanics of what we're about to talk about here. Right. That's just straight up just role playing and base information. Level information. Yeah, yeah. I love it. To to help immerse not only yourself but your players. Right. Just, just that that extra little step is enough to take what is an interesting adventure and turn it into something that's spectacular and memorable. For sure. And they also have a, a page here dedicated, like, they have the dwarf gods and the elven gods and the halfling gods, which they even talk about, like, the priest, what you can expect from different things there. So there's some good se- sections in there. I fully expect we're going to get more on this when we get source books about, yeah. you know, those races or and everything as well. And then it does give a little bit about the chaos gods. Again, fully expect a source book on chaos. Probably several. So let's get to the crunchy bits. And this is fun. If I do roll up a priest or a nun or something else, um, I, there's a very good chance that I'm going to have access to some very key skills and talents, which are going to make things really fun. So what this is, is prayers, blessing, and miracles. Okay. When I first saw it, I'm like, this is almost just like magic, how magic works. But it's not. It's it's different, but similar. And what you have is you have a pray skill. So once you have access to the pray skill, you can pray. And now pray as a skill, you can go read it. It has a couple of different uses, like even praying like before battle or during battle to get advantage. Uh, you know, those are some simple uses. But having the pray skill will allow you, if you also have the talent, for example, blessing. Blessing is a talent that lets you use the pray skill to do blessings. Blessings are, I almost equate them to like minor spells, but they're like minor favors from your gods. Yeah. And they have a whole section of them. I mean, I'm not going to go over all of them, but just some of the things, they're just really cool. Like one of my favorite is, this seems so simple, but blessing of righteousness, right? You bless your target's weapon counts as magical. And I can tell you right now, the first time you encounter like some sort of ghost or ghoul or something that can't be harmed except by magic, you better wish you've got that. Yeah, you better have it. Like, oh, we didn't bring the wizard with us this time. Um, oh, but the priest can bless my my sword. Oh, so instead of going through that ghost, it actually does damage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, and that seems super simple, but hey, a, another tool in your box. They have blessing of courage, get plus 10 willpower. You know, they can do simple things like that. This is probably my favorite. Blessing of conscience. Your target must pass a routine willpower test to break any of the strictures of your deity. Mm, okay. And if they fail, they are overcome with shame and do not take the action. Like, 
So good. <laughs> You'd mentioned praying, right? right and that's right. A, that's another thing that mm-hmm. as a GM, you can make a quick note behind your GM screen that if your player doesn't pray at some point during the adventure, well, there's they need to they need to account for that. Right. Right. I mean, there's the wrath of the gods table on here is excellent too. There's some real fun stuff on this on this table. Right. And that's actually something where sin points and stuff can come into account as well. One of the things we talked about blessings. And when there's another thing where you get the invoke talent. I'm gonna come back to the the wrath of the gods in just a second here. Okay. But when when you come back, the other thing is miracles. So I like to think of miracles as more like full size spells, right? Instead yeah. of like a minor blessings or major blessings, and they actually can do some different stuff. But um you need the invoke talent to uh, be able to do that. So you still use a praise skill and all that, but you just do different things. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about the specifics on the miracles and some of the really cool things that you can do with those in just a second. But let's come back to the sin points. So if you remember, we talked about all those different cults and the gods and how we had strictures, right? So your GM, now this adds a little bit on the GM, but if you have a player that's actually playing one of these breers, it's going to be so fun. Have those strictures handy and yes. punish when punishment is due. Right. So we have those strictures. So we were talking about Sigmar, right? Like, so yeah. um, what was it? Like obey orders, uh, stuff like that. So here's another one. So Raya, goddess of fertility. So some of the strictures are defend families, children, and crops from all harm. Right. So if you see, like as a GM, you're describing. Throw that in there. Yeah. Perfect. And so if they don't do that, you're going to be like, oh, excellent. That's a sin point. Or depending on how bad it is, right? So if you're uh, supposed to protect prisoners of war, like, well, they use this example in there where, all right, so you don't give the prisoner water and or, you know, food or treat them well, then your GM's going to assign you a sin point. Or maybe you beat some information out of them, right? Well, maybe that's two sin points. Maybe you torture them or kill them. That's three sin points. And then you get these sin points and they build up. Yeah. And so every time that you do a prey test, depending on those sin points, like if you fumble, right, the test, you can, you'll roll on the Wrath of the God chart. But in addition, the ones or the units digit of your die when you roll that test, if it's less or equal to your current number of sim points you have, you also have to roll on the Wrath of the Gods table. Some of these are wicked. We talked about bleeding earlier. Well, if you end up with divine <laughs> wounds, you get one plus the number of sim points bleeding conditions. And if you recall what we spoke about like 20 minutes ago, that's right. bad. That's bad. You're in, you're in rough shape. This is, I equate this to, it's just another similar to miscast chart, but like different. Um, so we always talk about demons appear, right? 88 on this chart is demonic interference. The dark gods answer your pleas instead of your patron. 1d10 lesser demons appear within 2d10 yards of your position and attack the nearest targets. I just think about that. So you try to do this blessing to heal a child in the streets, but you've been you got too many sin points, and you roll this up. Now, all of a sudden, you have four demons running around attacking townspeople, and you, and yeah. man. That might actually be beneficial for a moment, right? If you're <laughs> up against a horde of goblins, then sweet, these demons are going to take them out. But once those goblins right. are gone, you better hope you're not right. But then, nearby. And think about all the corruption that's going to happen on top of that, right? Yeah. Like, oh, you're just in the presence of a lesser demon. Everybody gets a corruption point. Yep. 
and then oh fear test and everything else like this becomes an entire session right because you you had to roll on the wrath of the god yeah. table oh absolutely and then now think about this think about this from other players perspective right like now as another player when you are not treating the prisoner well because that's one of your strictures i care last time i had to fight a demon because of you i have four corruption points by the yeah. end of that that's your fault like you're you know just think of the role-playing opportunities oh, absolutely oh man i just love this i mean i have not had a priest in any of the parties i've gm'd yet and i haven't played one but i can tell you the first player character that i might do for a longer campaign I might not do random so I can get to do like, some of this stuff and stuff. Yeah. I just, I really want to try this out. I adore looking through this table and seeing some of the options on here. Thunderbolts and lightning. Your God smites you. You reduce to zero wounds and you gain the ablaze condition. <laughs> so you're unconscious and on fire and on fire. <laughs> the, and there's uh again, these are, these would be very difficult to get cause you'd need to roll incredibly high plus have, the plus uh, 10 for each prior suffer as I suffer. You gain one plus sin points, bleeding conditions every morning, every, every morning, morning. until you perform a penance. Yeah. And then finally, if you roll over 151, which again would, would not happen uh, very often. You are summoned before your God to face final judgment. Unless you have a fate point, you never return. Just booyah. It's like, called like called into Thanos, account. Right. Just yeah. Yeah. Finger snap. You just fade away into dust and you're gone. Yeah, this is cool. If you spend a fate point, you are returned at a point of the GM's choosing and also suffer the effects of I cast you out, which is like the next worst one. Yeah. Which you're like abandoned. you're abandoned. Yep. You permanently lose bless and invoke talents and all prey advances. And it even goes further. There's more and more. It's like it is just again, role playing opportunities. And you mentioned that this chart you add plus ten. So for every sim point you have, you add plus ten to your roll on this chart. So that's how things get worse. Mm -hmm. And so not only did I manage to roll a critical or a double or, you know, whatever it is that, that I have to roll in the wrath of the gods chart. Now, Oh shoot. I have four sin points. I'm adding plus 40 to my roll. Yeah. And at that <laughs> point, even the low end of it, even at like, of, if you had plus 40, you're looking at not being able to enact prey tests for multiple rounds. You're looking at target gains, the prone condition, blessings and miracles automatically fail for a certain number of days. So no matter what, if you get to that point, you're in rough shape. And that's even if you roll low. Right, right. An it's... average roll with, if you were sitting at four points, is not good. Right. Gain one plus 10 points, broken conditions. And and here's, a, here's another thing I love about this, right? So to, how do you get rid of sin points? And this is really interesting. This is where the penances come yeah. in. Each cult has different penances depending on the cult and stuff. So I think one of my favorite is Manon, God of the Sea, with their penance. And penances from Manon often involve hazardous maritime pilgrimages, tests of sailing skills or expeditions against the sea god's enemies, especially followers of the heretical cult of Stormfells, God of Pirates, Wreckers, and Sharks. Okay, so here's the thing. If your player decides they must or have to do a penance or whatever you you have a couple of options as a gm that's an entire campaign arc yeah potentially could could be a, a like a mini session right mm -hmm. for just that player yes and that's yes that's exactly what i'm talking about hey we're gonna have a special session you leave the party for a couple of weeks and you know and heck that could be even a fun time for you as a gm to bring in some new players have a whole different storyline but where that character is going on this sea journey for a couple months. And, right. Oh, man. The Cult of Ulrich, the penance is 
Penances set by Ulrich are almost always tests of strength or courage. So slaying a powerful monster, clearing out a nest of beastmen or outlaws are typical tasks. That's not easy. No. And if you have to perform a penance, or you're taking wounds every day, or bleeding conditions every morning, whew. And that's a good and, night. Right. And again, think of the role-playing opportunities. Okay, I need to go and do this penance. I got to go clear out a nest of beastmen or something. I can't do that alone. I need help. Yeah. I'm trying to convince the rest of my party who like is probably already really ticked at me for whatever's yeah. going on. Yep. You mean to tell me you want me to come with you to fight this giant monster? Right. Good after luck. after I just had to fight a bunch of demons because you not taking care of the prisoner, you know, or whatever it is. Yeah. You saw those people setting that crop on fire and you did nothing. You know. <laughs> so great. Yeah. There's a lot here. It is. A lot of great Story hooks for GMs, a lot of great role playing for players. I love it. I love it. So, all right, let's talk about some miracles. So, the miracles are, again, we kind of equated them to spells. Each cult has their own. They can do some pretty powerful things. Did you have a favorite, Matt? I do, I do have a favorite. And these are fantastic. There are seven pages of miracles. Oh, so good. And they're, some are, are excellent. One of my favorites is Drowned Man's Face, which is a miracle of Manan. <laughs> and I'm just going to read it. You implore Manan to drown your foes. Your target's lungs continuously fill with salt water while the miracle is active, and their hair floats around their head as if submerged. That is so cool. And <laughs> horrifying, too. I know, like, right? I Think about how, how much it sucks when you just take a sip of water down the wrong way. And right, you're right. coughing and hacking. Could you imagine your lungs just starting to fill with water magically? Ugh. Right, right. and your hair is like floating like you're underwater, but you're not. Like, just think of the the visual. Oh, yeah. My favorite is one that's a little more practical thing. It's uh, Eagle's Eye, and that is a miracle of Meridia. Yeah, Meridia. So she's like the uh, the general kind of the the person that's the really good general, kind of the goddess of uh, of fighting and battle. And uh, this one, you call on Meridia to send a divine servant to grant you knowledge of your enemies. A spectral eagle manifests, soaring into the sky above. The eagle looks like and has the capabilities of a normal eagle, but cannot physically affect the world or be harmed in any way. While the miracle is in effect, you can see through the eagle's eyes and control its flight, surveying the battlefield and spying upon your enemies. While looking through the eagle's eyes, you cannot see through your own eyes, leaving you potentially vulnerable. So cool. I don't even know where to go with it. Like I can tell you, like I'd be using that at every opportunity. There's so much potential there. Yeah. So much. I love it. Makes me think of Bran Stark in Game of Thrones, who can who has the ability to warg into beings, whether they're animals or other humans. Oh, okay. And can and that's a perfect thing. Like he can warg into a raven and it's flying overhead, and now you've got this huge advantage. You could have a, a character who that's that's what they do. That's right. how they aid your battle. They stay out of it, right? They can't fight, but they can do this. Right. Right. We talk about how deadly combat is, right? Well, what if we know that, you know, the enemy's up ahead? Well, hey, eagle, go scout, right? I can't think of a safer way to do that. Yeah. So. See what's going on. Oh, there's a ton of goblins that way, but none this way? There you go. Let's go this way. There's some great stuff in here. And I love the fact that they're all, you know, for each of the different gods or goddesses, there's a handful of different miracles that that are very for evocative. That. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They give you that feel of what that God or goddess is all about. Yeah, I agree. It's really, really cool. I, one of the other ones I liked was Raya's union 
You bless and consecrate mm-hmm. the union between two souls. While this miracle is in effect, if biologically possible, the couple will conceive a child. So fascinating. <laughs> yes. How you could play that into a session or into a campaign. Right. Oh, you know, and that's the thing. So as a GM, I'm going to know you, you have like a certain number of miracles. It's like a certain number of spells, right, that the player has access to. So if I know what you have, again, it's story hooks. It's, I know I'm going to try to, what can I do to make that be an interesting choice that you made, you know? Right. So awesome. Well, we can't talk about blessings and miracles and religion all day. When we, we could. We could. We, we could. shouldn't. But, but our next chapter is just as interesting. Right. Talking about magic. So the first portion of this is not rules heavy at all. The first portion of it really just talks about the lore, the history of magic. So if you're new to Warhammer or if you have a character or I'm not a character, a player that's new to Warhammer and they don't really understand or know how magic works. The first like five pages of the magic section is perfect. Right. That's going to give you the feel. It's going to talk about the Aether. It's going to talk about the winds of magic and going into the different lores. So I don't think we really need to go too in depth into this. No, we we did a whole episode before where we talked about the, the world and the history of magic. So I would refer anybody to that yeah. to get a little bit more. I think it was into like it. episode two or three. Yeah, um, if you want to go back and look, but but this does have some good information and it's updated and, and current and and it's all really well. And it's and nice. yeah, it's current. It's it's great. It's beautiful, right? So each of the different of the eight lores, there's a paragraph or two that talks about that lore, and there's a full color piece of art oh. that it shows. Uh, you know, one of the followers or one of the are they followers? Or are they the well, I mean, the Magisters. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of different names for... Yeah, however you'd want to put you know, it. Wizards, Magisters, yeah. so... Yeah. Yeah, and it talks about the different, like, Elven Magic, Dark Magic, High Magic, and all that, too. Yeah. So And th- even, yeah, even, like, other lores outside of it, like mm-hmm. Witchcraft and Hedgecraft. Right. Right. The real reason most people are turning to this, I know one of the first things I turned to this chapter for was the rules. Right. And uh, the rules are pretty straightforward. They talk about some of the stuff like second, uh, second sight. Like this is the ability to see the winds of magic. We talked about that in the past as well. But it's about spells, right? Um, how do you learn spells? How do you cast spells? And and what can they do? And everybody's favorite thing in this, you know, chapter: what happens when I miscast a spell, and how does that work? So, this is how it works. In order to cast a spell, you use language magic. So you take a look at your success levels and you compare it to the CN, which is the casting number. And as long as you met that number or did more, then you succeed in casting. If you roll less than that, then you fail. And one of the ways that you can actually get to some of those more powerful spells that are going to be a lot harder, that have a lot higher casting number, is by channeling. So, And we're going to talk about how you miscast and what criticals do in just a second. But let me just explain channeling because it's going to come into effect more often than you think. So in order to make sure that you have the success levels you need in order to cast a specific spell, especially ones that have higher casting numbers, you're going to want to channel. So channeling is an actual skill that you would do as a magic user, and it's an extended test. So you keep testing every round, and you add the success levels together as you keep going up. And so what happens is once you've generated enough success levels to cast a spell you want, then your next round, you can actually do the language magic test to test it. So that's essentially how you can cast those more powerful spells. So it means your most powerful spells, it's going to take a round or two or three for that wizard to get that to go off. Now, there are talents that you can use to affect this you know, positively. There are different items and things, but that's the basics of the role. 
So here's what happens. How do you get on that miscast table? Because that's what we're all wondering. <laughs> There's a lot of ways. So first off, if you succeed in your casting, but you roll doubles, you critically cast. Yep. Guess what? You get some. There's several positive effects for a critical casting, but you also cause a minor miscast. Right. So the the positive effects is like they call it critical class, total power, unstoppable force. So these are ways that like you can cast it and it can't be dispelled, or you know it, it can fix a critical wound in addition to damage. You know these are yeah. some positives that you can choose for it to happen, but you also miscast so you succeed in your cast but it also you have to roll on the miscast table um if you fumble the cast right so you fumble and you roll doubles you don't succeed in roll doubles hey that's a miscast table um if you roll zeros like at the 10 so it's not just doubles when you fail it's also if you roll it, it ends in a zero what you're saying is there are many opportunities to to have a bad thing happen right and and there you know there's a minor miscast table and a major miscast table, but even the minor miscast table is so interesting. Yeah, some of them are some of them are like that may not have any effect on anything, but it's interesting, right? So like even right. if you roll a one to five, the miscast is which sign? The next living creature born within one mile is mutated. Right. And as a GM, I think about that like let's say your character rolls that and they think nothing happened. Well, as a GM, something did happen. Yes. And you better believe that like a session or two from now, you're going to come across this wolf that has, you know, it's two heads cub. Yeah, or something. And, yeah. and it's, it's there to, to attack you. And I wouldn't even necessarily tell my players. Uh, in fact, I can tell you with certainty, I wouldn't tell my players that that mutated wolf is from when they rolled that miscast, but that'd be a fun thing for them to kind of discover on their own potentially. And that's just one example. The next one, all milk within one D 100 yards goes sour instantly. Yeah. Oh, I'm going like to make the payers play for that. They come into the town and that's anything all anyone is talking about, right? Yep. Like and, you know, and if the players let on that they were the reason, they're getting cast out for yeah. sure. Yeah, man. And so. that's that's rolling low. <laughs> we're talking <laughs> talking about bleeding. Uh roll a 31 to 35 and you have a rupture. Your nose, eyes and ears bleed profusely. Gain 1d10 bleeding conditions. 1d10. Yeah. Think about that. That's <laughs> You, I That's rolled a an eight away from certain death. Right, I rolled an eight. I have an eighty percent chance to die once I fall unconscious, just straight up. Like that's fate point territory there for sure. Right, so many different things. Uh, the, so if you get really unlucky, then it it goes over to the major miscast. Oh, uh, and one of my favorite ones on this is again you'd have to roll uh, between ninety six and a hundred to get go over to the major miscast table, and from there if you roll a seventy one to seventy five. You uh, cause a chaos quake. All creatures within D100 yards must must pass an average athletics test or gain the prone condition. So you basically cause an earthquake. It's again so which awesome. that's right. That's clearly not as devastating as bleeding out your every orifice on your face and potentially dying. But it's really interesting. Right, it'll make for a fun adventure. So some a uh, couple of my favorite here, like uh, intestinal rebellion. I don't know if you saw that one. That one is your bowels move uncontrollably and you soil yourself, gain one fatigue so condition, good. which cannot be removed until you change your clothes and clean yourself up. And another one... Uh, Hellish stench. Oh, you now yeah, smell yeah. really bad. Gain the distracting creature trait and probably the enmity of anyone with a sense of smell. This lasts for 1d10 hours. It's just so, interesting stuff, man. Yeah, the ones on Ragdoll, you're flung in yeah. random 1d10 yards or something in a direction and take damage so so cool 
And obviously, we talked about in previous shows some of the big, big ones where you know you could cause explosions if you don't have someone else nearby. Your yeah. head explodes. You know. Yeah. So it's just so cool, right? I mean, listen to our actual plays. We're all sitting around here. Yeah, we want Lynn to pass her her test, kinda. But we also want we, we want that. We want some miscasts, no matter what. We do. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but you get an unlucky roll. Yeah, the ninety six to one hundred on the major miscast is etheric feedback. Everyone within a number of yards equal to your willpower bonus, friend and foe like, suffers 1d10 wounds, ignoring toughness bonus and other armor points, and receives the prone condition. If there are no other targets in range, the magic has nowhere to vent, so your head explodes, killing you instantly. See, and I just think about this, man. The way I see this, there's a giant flash of light and a huge roar. It's like a big circle in the middle of the battle where the you know the wizard's in the center and everybody's laid down and like, yeah. oh. Well, and think about the severity of something like that. This isn't necessarily you on a battlefield casting, you know, firebolts down from the sky. This could be you in a goblin cave creating light from the tip of your wand or the tip right. of your staff. You could be like, okay, well, I'm just going to cast this to shed some light in this little cave. All Oops. of a sudden bleeding everywhere out of all of your, your eyes, nose, right. and mouth, and then you're lying on the floor dead. And I think we talk about this in earlier episodes too, but that's that's magic in Warhammer. Every time you cast a spell, you take a risk. Right. I think Janet had used eavesdrop, right? Like, and there's some good information she got there. But like, when you're sitting in a tavern and you really want to hear what those guys are saying, like, think about the risk. Is this spell worth potentially dying for or spending a fate point for? Because that could happen. Yeah, absolutely. So for, you could for, have a whole tavern full of people real pissed at you real fast, <laughs> right? If their milk all goes sour. <laughs> That's so awesome. So. So moving on, we could talk about this all day again. So there's a lot of different things in this chapter, and we're not going to like go through it with a fine-tooth comb here, but just know there are ways. Uh, for example, armor affects casting magic. If you're uh, the lore of beast, for example, like leather armor doesn't affect you, but others, if you're the lore of metal, obviously normal metal armor doesn't affect you. It's an interesting rule, and it's one of the reasons you see from a lore perspective of why wizards aren't running around fully armored. Yeah. Um, there's dispelling. If you're someone that can use magic and someone targets you with a spell, you can actually oppose that and you know potentially dispel that on the, the time. Or spells that stay in effect for a long period of time or whatever, you as a magister can attempt to dispel those. And the rules are in there for that as well. So Warpstone, in addition to you know all the fun corruption stuff we talked about that Warpstone will bring to your life, uh, we talked about in the last episode, uh, it gives you massive bonuses to casting spells. Those are different options in there. If you are going to be using magic, you need to read this chapter. Yeah, I, that that was my the point I was about to make. If you are a magic user, you really need to know this backwards and forwards. And honestly, if you're not, the there's not really a, a need to know this stuff. But there's a lot here. This is being a magic user is tricky and requires a lot of dedication to knowing how these rules work. Right, but but that also is going to make you more in, fun and interesting in the role-playing aspect, too. So it's one of those things where if you have brand-new players and they really want to play you know, a magic user, I mean, at the lower levels, the petty magic stuff, you don't really need to worry so much about channeling and all that because that's right. all, like, you know, it's not difficult to do. Right. Um, it, so, it, you could fail it, but it'd be it'd Right, be to, right. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and channeling is where you can jump straight to the major miscast table when you when you fail in there. It's just something to keep in mind because it's a whole another set of rules and it's a lot of fun. And it's I would say the same thing for a priest too. You get a brand new player that's doing a priest career. I mean, this is going to add extra onus onto both the GM and the player, but it's fun. 
It's fine. Yeah. I can, if you can't tell from us talking about all the bad things that can happen in both of these chapters. I feel like that's when we always get most excited <laughs> is when we, I think that's because you and I GM a lot. Right. We GM more than we play. That means that we're always looking for those opportunities to make something like fun and memorable happen. Yeah, memorable. Right? I want my players to look back and say, oh, I remember that session. That's when this happened. Right. You know, X, Y, or Z, whatever the case is. Nobody remembers the, like, oh, you walk for three days to the town, you yeah. know, whatever. Everyone remembers the, yeah, you rolled really bad on that. Or the ultimate, like, you got the killing blow in the final, right. you know, those are those heroic epic moments. Uh, but, absolutely. But let's be honest, this is Warhammer. That's like one-tenth of the time. Right. <laughs> they have some rules for overcasting, too, which is just like, hey, if you cast really well, you can get some extra bonuses. Check that out again. But Bells. They have a bunch of spells. So I want to just mention before we talk a little bit about some of the individual spells that are in here. First off, there is a bunch, just like the miracles, there's a bunch of pages of spells. Yeah. Tons and tons. Like 20 pages. And for every, each of the eight lores, there's a whole, you know, page and a half or more of spells that, that are specific to that. Right, that even win. petty petty magic's like almost two full pages of yeah. spells, and that's just a little thing. Like pretty much everyone gets access to petty magic, and then arcane magic. There's just a basic arcane that anyone that has access yeah. to arcane that can do any of those eight lores has normal arcane magic, and there's a bunch of those spells as well, like almost two pages as well. So there is a lot to work with as a spellcaster, and a lot of really interesting, cool things that you can do. Yeah, I want to mention a couple of things. So the arcane spells. So like the color magic, for example, they all have special bonuses or abilities when you're using those spells. And it's interesting. For example, I'm going to read the section on the Lore of Beasts here. Is whenever you successfully cast a spell from the Lore of Beasts, you also gain the fear creature talent for the next 1d10 rounds. And it talks about the description of it, right? The amber wind, and I'm probably saying this wrong, gore, gore, carries with it a chill primal ferocity that is unnerving to beasts and sentient creatures alike. So... Each one of these has a little bonus that is flavorful and colorful to the magic that you're casting. Thematic for that. that yeah. Yeah. It's just lore. really cool. So, all right. Let's talk a couple of our favorites. So, first one that comes to mind, and this is one of the lore, under the lore of beasts, is Flock of Doom. Yes. Which is so great. You call down a murder of crows or similar local bird to assail your foes. First off, the fact that a flock of crows is called a murder has always been something that I've right. I've, right? I've appreciated. So, and there's there's more, you know, it goes more into it from there, but that is such a cool, you talk about memorable scenes, right? right. You're being, being overrun until a giant flock of birds comes down and starts just attacking, attacking oh. whoever it, you're fighting. It's, again, thematic and everything, too. There is actually separate lores for hedge uh, magic and, and witchcraft mm-hmm. in here too. And there is a little bit about necromancy and chaos magic, like very little. I fully expect those to be expanded out in fl- further expansions. But one of my favorites is part of witch magic and it's called Merc Ride. And this one is awesome. So speaking ancient words of magic, your spirit leaves your body stepping into the hedge, the dark space between the material world and the spirit realm. Further duration, you stand apart from the world, able to witness it invisibly, but not affect it in any way. Physical barriers are no impediment to you, and you may walk through non-magical obstacles at will. Your body remains in place, immobile and insensate. At the end of the spell, you will be pulled back suddenly back to your body. If your body is killed while you're walking the hedge... Your spirit will wander aimlessly for eternity. <laughs> yep. Yes. Yep. 
I mean, do I even need to? I know this is sort of similar to the, the my favorite miracle, the the eagle one, right? Because yeah. you could use it to scout and stuff. But like this one is just like so. I send the eagle. Like I think outside this one. I'm like I'm in a deep dark dungeon. You know, I can walk through walls. I can see what's on Explore, the other side. Like, see what's, the, yeah. Oh man, there's so much potential. A locked here. door. Yeah, you can't get through. You like, can't see through. Right. There's so much. Like, I feel for the GM that has a player that, like, oh, yeah, this is my spell. Right. Right, because you got to really think ahead. But it, there's so much potential there. Yeah. So, oh, man. And there's so many good ones. Like, I really enjoy the their Grey Order, you know, the Illusion Magic. There's uh, this Shadow Lore, the Lore of Shadow. They, there's several things where you can doppelganger is a spell that you can mm-hmm. make yourself look like somebody else um you know illusion uh matt you and i were talking about this earlier i'm like there's really no real limit except what your gm puts on some of this yeah like i'm i'm sitting there i'm like man what if you have it like okay i cast a spell and it looks like there's an army coming over the hill to support us or you know or a giant warship you know is in the place of where your little dinghy is yeah. right just there's so many cool things, and it's so evocative of, of that. I love that. Did you what? What other ones did you like? There's a lot, and <laughs> so this much. is this is where each one has it's the, each one is thematic. Each one just helps you really understand how that whole lore functions. Right, right. Um, the the witch magic, the hedgecraft, and witchcraft. There's some really cool ones in there. I love uh, creeping menace, curse Ooh. of crippling pain. They're just, they're really fascinating. Uh, we could we could go on all day. We I think could. that's like the fifth time we've said the phrase, we could go on right. all day. Right, and, and arguably this is kind of the rules light section of the book that we're talking about here, but yeah. it's just, the stuff that's here is so good. Like, I just enjoy reading it, and every time I get done with that chapter, it's like, oh man, like I'll read the section on the spells for the, the bright wizard or whatever. Ooh, I want to be a bright wizard. And then I'll read the like lore of beasts. Ooh, I want to be that wizard. Yes. Like, you know, it's so good. Yeah, Creeping Menace says, you summon a swarm of creeping, slithering creatures to harass your foes. Each target affected is immediately engaged by a swarm of giant rats, spiders, or snakes. Yeah, So much fun. Yep, that's good stuff. Uh, Alas, that's magic. So, let's move on. So we're just moving right in the book here, and I think our next chapter is... The Game Master. Ah, yes. So, this clearly goes without saying but if you're going to be a gm this is an important section to read through and it's not long it's only i think five or six pages but it it really if you're not familiar with gming this gives you a lot of great advice right really great advice on what to do how to feel how to present the game and how you can make it interesting so Cubicle 7 has basically admitted that this is one of the areas they wanted to do so much more with. They, they, they had to cut, right? We have to make it fit a certain number of pages or whatever, and I get that. And I'm not complaining. I mean, the spell list alone, right? I did not expect that kind of spell list for a core book, you know, maybe a right. magic supplement. And, I mean, there's been rumors and words of a magic supplement, too. Like, how many spells are we going to get? This would be awesome. Yeah, if there's that many. Right. Like, what, 20, 20 pages worth Yeah, however many in this book? Uh it's, yeah. it's awesome. So what's in here is good and golden. And yeah. the starter set is supposed to have, from some of the conversations we've been hearing from Andy and TS, starter set supposed to have some more GM advice coming in it too. That hasn't dropped yet. I'm waiting. I kind of thought it was supposed to be last month. But, yeah. but we'll yeah. see. It'll, you know, I mean, to be fair, we haven't even, we don't have the core rulebook in our hands yet. But. Right, right. So some of the stuff it says in here, some of the basics of being a, a GM, and this is goes beyond just Warhammer. 
you are the world, you are the rules, you are the plot, you are the leader. So as a GM, you are the one who's in charge of making it entertaining. Knowing the book, there's a whole section in here about general advice. I'll just hit a couple that I think are really important. Get to know this book very well. That goes without saying. You've got to be the one who either knows the rule or knows how to find it quickly. So knowing the book, whether you know, you know, read the whole thing cover to cover multiple times, or at least you know what section to get to that spell mm-hmm. quickly is just going to save time. It's going to make it to where the game's not bogging down. Consider how to handle or bypass content a player might not find to their taste. That is all part of being a good GM. Start out by talking about what, what the players are going to want, how they're going to want the game to go, what things they want to avoid. And if you've got a player who isn't comfortable with really gruesome things, which if you're not comfortable with that, you shouldn't be playing Warhammer. Yeah. But if there's, if there's <laughs> things that you're really not comfortable with, know that and know not to include that in your session, right? You always right. want players to have fun. And that's another one of the bullet points in here is when in doubt, err on the side of having fun. And that's, you know, if you have a player that's not having fun, then you as a GM need to make a, make a change. Yeah. Yep. And I think we've probably stated that so many times in the past. So there's some, some real core GM advice and that's, that's always at the top. Yep. I think that the chapter assumes like, Hey, if you're like a brand new GM, you should be getting started set. And, and this book is good, but but this is probably not enough for someone that's never played a role-playing game with a bunch of friends that have never played a role-playing game. Right. Like they're going to need more. Yes. They're probably going to want the starter set, um, you know, to get started here. But this is, it's, it's good advice, but it, it's like the bare outline. It's almost like you got the outline and some little tidbits, you know. Where this chapter really gets interesting is where it talks about traveling. Yes. So that, that is, the majority of this section is really overarching GM advice for a new GM or a Really, a seasoned GM as well. But the travel information on here is really fascinating. So it breaks down different ways you can travel, whether it's by road, by river, the prices it uh, costs, whether you're traveling by a coach or a barge or in a cab or in a ferry, right. which are things that you would, wouldn't necessarily think about, but that's going to happen, right? You're gonna If you're going to travel a long ways, you may want to go by coach. And if you do, what's that cost going to look like? In addition, there's a whole table in here that's all about different events that happen while you're traveling right so whether it's a short distance or a long distance you can roll on this table and find out that your characters get robbed by a group of thieves that have been following you or that come out of the the bushes rob your coach or your party you could be attacked you could have you know the journey itself could be more tiring than normal all sorts of different stuff that's fun and just a way to add more intrigue to what could be a very boring portion of your adventure right so a lot of times as gms you might have a story where the journey is part of the story or whatever and you're not going to need this right you because you're already dealing with you know whatever is going on but it's in those times where you need your players to get from point a to point b and there's no real story part in there and when you throw anything in like it probably feels a little contrived but if you have a chart like you know that where it's random stuff and it's just part of traveling in the empire you know then it then this is perfect i i like this i've made it well known that i have jammed and played a lot of the star wars system and i find the traveling between you know if you're going hyperspace between two planets i find that often to be the most boring part of any adventure because it's like okay you've got six hours while you're flying to this other planet what do you want to do sit on the spaceship you know look around, clean a weapon, whatever. There's, there's not as many options 
I don't think, or at least it's not presented as cleanly and as concisely as it is in this rule book. Right. I see. You almost could use some, something like that in a, a long journey, like in a that's almost that's almost like an endeavors situation. Right. You could think if you could build Star Wars and man, we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Like you said, it's like only a few pages long, but it's some good yeah, stuff. In there's there. some good stuff in there. It's invaluable information if you're a new GM for right. sure. The last part of that section talks about what happens after the game. So awarding XP. I always love to give extra XP to any player who does a great job role playing, who is really into their character, who plays to their strengths and weaknesses, who, you know, just does a good job, right. I guess. Right. Uh, no other way to yeah, put that. And, and there's one thing. So I've heard on some other, I remember if it was on a podcast or, or something else, so when it talks about performance, poor, good, exceptional, when they were talking about this originally, um, they were talking about like, well, if you, they had poor role-playing experience and stuff like that, and they were talking about how that feels like, ah, oh, well, I don't know that I'd punish people. Like, well, I'm all for giving bonuses when people like role-play exceptionally and stuff like that. That's fine. But I believe the intent of this chart isn't like poor, good, exceptional role-playing. It's poor, good, exceptional on the outcome of the, right? So your goal was to go into this goblin yeah. thing and obtain X, Y, and Z and come out alive. So yeah, maybe you obtained that, but you lost some people in the process and all that. Yeah. So maybe you didn't or do a you good job. X, Y, and Z, but you only got X and Y. Right. So I think this is more about the outcome of whatever sure. your goal was than rather um, how well did that player individually play? Yeah, that makes sense. So, All right. So our next section is Visitor's Guide to the Reichland. I like the little artwork of this yeah. book. Like, I kind of want it for real. Right. Yeah, like, that would be cool. Um, but anyway, it's about 20, it's a little over 20 pages long, and it is in-depth. It has a full timeline history of the Reichland. This is very Reichland-specific, so this is great. Like, if you're adventuring the Reichland, this is great. So if you're taking your adventure somewhere else, this is not as useful for right. you. But um, Yeah, if you're taking it somewhere else, wait for the supplement that's about that area. <laughs> right, right. But what is in here is great. So they start off with kind of an overall idea of like, okay, here's a Reichland. This is what it is. you know. And then it talks about, hey, what about the mountains? What about the rivers? What about the forest? And it gives a lot of great interesting, you know, the cursed and fetid marshlands. And it goes over all this and it gives you examples of the different areas that are points of interest. And no. And, right, and the things that you're going to find there that I personally would take a section like this specifically the one that's talking about the different locations flip through it with my eyes closed point to a section and then say hey today's adventure is going to be set in dunkelberg right and then i've got a little bit i can tell them about and from there build build a story out of it right you can read what that area is about what that settlement entails and find a way to make it interesting and you don't even have to come up with your own ideas they have story hooks very clearly laid out here one of my favorite is it talks about the rhine tree and it's like this tree that's frozen all year long perpetually frozen and the cult of Ulrich has kind of set it as a holy site and nobody really understands what's going on and it talks about you know, that somebody is willing to pay good coin for brave men to secure, you know, this tree and to get a piece of bark from it that might, that's obviously somewhat magical or what's yeah. going on, you know, boom, adventure right there, entire adventure, like probably a couple sessions worth. And they have this peppered throughout. You could have a campaign that lasted multiple years with the information that's in this section. Oh, if easily. you never, if you wanted to keep it, you know, within the Reichland, 
there's enough here where you could go forever. Right. We often talk about uh, long-form campaigns as a way to play the game. But it's not unusual to have a group that plays the same game but wants to play a bunch of different characters, wants to do a bunch of one-shots. Um, or even if you like meet at a store and have different players every time, so you have preset characters or whatever, or maybe characters that they make and then come so they're here this week, not the next or whatever. This is great because there's a bunch of mini sessions, like yeah. you can one session things you can come up with just out, out of the section. So you can stay in the Reichland for months and yeah. never have to, you know, play the same sort of adventure another time and not have to think very much about it. Sure, come up with stats or whatever, fill out the details, but the story is right there. When I GM, I've got my notebook there and it is just every page is covered in notes about different things that I've done or different encounters that have happened in a certain location. So let's say you do go to Dunkelberg and you have an adventure there or a session or even just an encounter there, but something that you do could have effect later in the game. So let's say a year later you're playing with the same party. You go back to Dunkelberg. Well, that shop that you robbed or that townsfolk who got killed, what impact did that have on the town? Right. What, what did you do? So, Make sure that as you're playing, like keep take those notes so where if they revisit a location they were at before, the actions they took there mattered and right. they had some effect. For sure. So I don't want to spend a ton more time on this one um, because this is all good stuff. Just know it talks about politics, like politics in the Reichland and stuff. This is really important that I think a GM, the GM should read the timeline and the politics section at the bare minimum yeah. of, of this. Um but it's a good stuff. It talks about um, Reichland Estates. There's a beautiful map by Andy Law in there um, of the estate. I really like it. it the sample Reichland Estate. And then the settlements, that's where you're talking about, you know, all the, like a lot of major settlements and stuff. Probably one of my favorite things they do is they have then sections near the end where they talk about bastions and fortresses, like the Blackstone Tower. And then villages, hamlets, and holy places. This is really mm-hmm. cool. You know, Monastery of the Holy Word. And then they have ancient sites and terrible ruins. This is so cool. Castle Drakenfels, right? Everybody talks about that. The Singing Stones. This is a really cool location where the wind or something happens and these stones sound like they're singing, but it's it doesn't make sense and it's could be mad. Like, boom, I don't even know anything about it. I want to go there. Yeah, oh, you for know, sure. It's, it's, and thinking about how you could turn that into a story hook, right? So your, ooh, party, yeah. your party who doesn't have a magic user walks by it and they're just they're intrigued by it. It's really right. interesting and they, they make note of it. But then they come back. They walk past it on their way back with a magic user somehow, and now it's a whole different situation. Right. That magic user can interact with it. There's yeah, there's a lot of there's ah. such so much good information here. And I thinking about how much gameplay you have in just the Reichland, we know that there's gonna be multiple source books that have different locations. And yeah. It's a the good time to be a Warhammer roleplay fan. I agree. I, there is years worth of campaigning, even if you meet weekly, yeah. just in this core book. Core book, yeah. And I, they already said there we got tons of releases coming in the next two years. I can't wait. I know we sound like fanboys, which I guess we kind of are. But <laughs> to be clear, we're not supported by Cubicle Seven. We're not paid by Cubicle Seven. We just love this book. But if you want to pay us Cubicle Seven, that's true. Give us a call. Yeah, <laughs> do that. So. All right, moving on. So after the Reichland, we get to the Consumer's Guide, which is going to break down all of the different things you can spend your money on, the trappings that you have, how they function, all sorts of different information in there. So it starts out talking about the money. I love there's the breakdown of the different slang in here for money. I'm pretty sure I'm going to call shillings shimmies from now on. Yes. And I also love that pennies are called fennigs. I think uh, Steve's favorite is shrapnel, I think. Shrapnel. Yeah. Clanks. Yeah. That's good. 
So breakdown of that, it talks about the cost of living, how if your character has a brass tier for their social level, they're the poorest members of society, unlikely to ever see gold in their lifetime, going up to gold tier, which is the wealthiest elites who don't even bother themselves with Fennigs. Right. Just And it's cool. Some of the artwork for the coins throughout this book, too, is, is beautiful. If they make metal coins... I, I think, I think have we, to. we just need to learn how to forge and cast our own money. Oh, man. Well, the, it's, to my thing, they already have the artwork. So, like, just do it, Cubicle 7. Hire... <laughs> like, I mean, there are companies out there. Oh, you yeah. know, Give them the license. Or, well, I suppose probably technically Games Workshop would have yeah. to do that. But So, maybe that will never happen. But who Someday. knows? Someday. Maybe. Right. I liked the part in here that talked about counterfeiting and criminal coinage. So yeah. counterfeiting, just like you know, nowadays, is a real thing. Rules for it, how you can evaluate if you get counterfeit money. And that's another great story hook, right? You do this, we complete this uh, quest for some person or this, this thing that they ask you to do. They give you a sack of money. Well, what if it's all counterfeit? Right. And if you don't think to test that, that could be a whole session in itself dealing with this counterfeit money. Yeah, it, it's good. I mean, in, at the end of the day, this chapter essentially is an item and equipment chapter, right? Yeah, and yeah, and that's that's most of what's in here. It's not stuff that I don't think we really need to dig too deeply into. Yeah, hitting some of the highlights on it and stuff. There are some important rules in here. I'm not even going to go into the shield debate. Like that's gigantic post on Facebook that people are going back and forth. They've already said they're going to give us on the FAQ or whatever that they do the errata. We're going to see that, but. Shields are a lot better than they were before because you don't need parry skill in order to like utilize them completely. But there's a lot of back and forth. I'm not yeah. going in there. Yeah. So the rules rules are pretty cool in here. Yeah. It, it breaks down a lot of things that you may not even consider, right? Like if you want a specific item, you may not even be able to find it. So there's rules for availability mm-hmm. depending on whether the, what you're looking for is common scarce rare or exotic and then also whether you're looking in a town a village or a city so right. there's a chart in there that breaks that down bogenhofen versus altdorf it's a big difference right. on whether you're going to find that rare musket or whatever you're looking for yep rules on bartering bargaining trading uh selling items so if you have an item that is depending on how much it's been used you're not going to get the full price back for it also introduces some fun role-playing opportunities right bartering with the shop owner is something that can be really fun. Yeah. Like if you have and a if merchant you have... in your party, like, and he takes a bunch of, you know, advances, glowing in those mushrooms skills. or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> um, it also talks about craftsmanship. So if you have an item that has more positive qualities than flaws, then it's considered a, like a quality item uh, and can be described as fine, which doesn't necessarily have any significant effect in game, except for the fact that this item is really nice and potentially more sought after, maybe worth more money. Right, but if you're a good player, you're going to use that to convince your GM for some sort of bonus at some point. Oh, yeah, point. for sure. <laughs> no, it's cool. All that information is there, right? So, like, if it matters that your sword that you picked up is shoddy, yeah. all right, there's a rule for it here. Right. You can go look that up and, and know what break. that means, right? Yeah. yeah, weapons can have damage. There's a part in this chapter that talks about where sometimes if you fumble, you can damage your weapon. Well, what does that mean? The rules are here. Yeah. Um, they're, and they're not like crazy or overly complicated. Most of these yeah. things are one or two sentences long. Right. It gives you what you need to know and it moves on. Yep. So if you have an unreliable sword, that means that the sword is crafted without intention to functionality. A failed test using this item receives negative one success level. Simple, right? right? Simple, but it, it's a, just a way to add that, yeah. add that in. Yeah. So breaks down encumbrance. So it talks about different items 
gives you examples on what would have a zero encumbrance versus what would have a large encumbrance. And I think I've mentioned this before specifically, but the encumbrance system is so much better, in my opinion, in this system than in previous systems. I don't want to worry about the five tiny things that are in my pocket that each have one encumbrance because I can carry a total of 112. Yep. No, I, <laughs> the sword I, is one. I get bogged down on this too. I yeah. know whenever I fill out my character sheets for my players, if I'm updating them, I'll add, I'll put the encumbrance on there in little parentheses. Mm-hmm. But most of the time it's not significant, right? Yeah. It shouldn't really matter until you're carrying a, a cask of wine. Right, or, or something, something that matters. That's, right. Yeah, you just have to, as a GM, I would argue it's, it's like food and drink, right? It only matters when it matters. Yes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yep. So... One thing that you'd mentioned earlier when we were talking before we started was worn items. So if you have a cloak that has a encumbrance of one, if you're wearing it, it becomes zero. Right. It's always reduced by one if it's some item that you're wearing, which makes sense, right? If you're right. if it's on your body, you're not worried about how you're transporting it, how you're carrying it. Exactly. Exactly. There's some a lot of optional rules in here too. Weapon length and infighting are very interesting, and I know infighting has caused some discussion. These are rules that can add some complexity to your combat. These I kind of fall under the until you're really comfortable with combat. Some of this stuff like infighting I wouldn't worry too much about, but that's where like having a small dagger can matter when you're fighting a spearman, you know. And again, things that you might not worry about or might it's salt to taste. Yeah. But those are two cool rules that I like in there too. Yeah. Like you said, with a lot of these rules, they don't matter until they matter. Right. Right. You may never even mention to your players how item qualities work, if they're durable or fine or lightweight. But eventually they may come across something that does have one of those qualities. Right. So you, you can introduce the rules as you play. It's not something you have to go over all. Or, or one of your endeavors, right? I want a really finely made sword. What does yeah. that mean? And then you can go look that up. Yeah. So. I can relate this back to, I talked about Red Dead Redemption 2 earlier. So that's one of the things mm-hmm. in this game. You can customize your weapons to make them awesome. So when I first started, I didn't have the money to do it. So I just bought a pistol, right? Right, right. Standard pistol. Well, then I completed this mission or I went and found a gold bar, you know, in a treasure chest somewhere. So I go back to town. Now I've got this money. So now I get a, a nice weapon with gold inlay and stained wood and her pearl uh, grips. <laughs> nice. Just one of those things. Just because. Again, it, it didn't matter right. until it mattered in that sense, and I think right. it translates to this in a, in a way as well. Right. Uh, all your weapons have different special rules, and your armor as well. Again, I'm, I don't know that we need to mention all this, but there's the one thing that I do want to mention for armor. Um, it's called critical deflection. So this is an important one, and there's been some discussion on this online as well, but this is the idea that instead of taking a critical hit, if it hit a place where you have armor, you can choose instead to have the armor be damaged, subtract one armor point from that location, and not take the critical, though you still hmm. take all the damage. Sure. So it is a way that armor becomes incredibly useful to stop criticals. Now, yeah. the arguments with people have is based on you know, the realism of this or not, but regardless of how you feel about it, it is a great tool, again, trying to stay alive, and armor's not cheap either, so... But it's a definite thing there I wanted to mention. There's a lot of interesting weapon qualities as well. And again, we don't mm-hmm. need to go into all of them, but it's important that your players know if they have an item, for example, that has the impale quality, how that functions. Right. You know, or, or other things as well. So keep that in mind. Make sure that these rules are nearby. 
Right. Some point to the players need to take some responsibility oh, yeah, for no. the the qualities of the gear I, that they're carrying. Like the way, you as a GM can't worry. No, no, no. You, the know, way you I, let me know how your spear works. Right. I here's the thing. It, when I'm playing, if somebody obtains something that has a quality like this, I'll read it. I'll tell them. Right. Let them write it down. But if they forget, well, that's on them. Right. Right. I'll remember the negative ones. Exactly. Yeah. That's. <laughs> you forgot to pray. Uh, gotta do penance. Sorry, right. You get a sin. <laughs> Um, anyway, a lot of normal stuff, tools, prices for stuff, you know, how much to get to rent a horse. We yep. don't need to go over all that stuff. Clothing, food, yeah. drink. Drugs and poisons. That one's fun. Um, oh, yeah. Prosthetics. It's the old world. You're going to probably need some of those at some point. So, yeah. So I think the last thing here, which is really interesting and fun, is hirelings and henchmen. This is really cool. I'm going to start with henchmen. Henchmen are essentially what they refer to as pets or people that are traveling with you like as part of your campaign, you know, NPCs that are basically permanent members of your party. So if you're if you're listening to our actual play episodes, which I assume most of you are, that's like Hag. He's a henchman or, in the or, sense that he's part of our part of our group. Sort of. Or, I would or, almost um, say it's more like Heinrich. Heinrich, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Heinrich, because Heinrich's essentially always going to be there. <laughs> okay. You sure about that? No, I mean, I no, like... I'm not sure about that. I don't think we can say he's always going to be there. Right. Man, isn't his like motivation always go first or something? I don't <laughs> I don't know what we made him. I think it's more Conrad's motivation to always go last. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but the, the rules for this basically say create a normal character. Just do normal character yeah. creation, and then they receive half of the experience of everyone else. Yep. Which is a such an elegant way, right? So it makes this NPC be meaningful yeah, to helpful. the party, but it's not overshadowing the player characters. Yeah. Now, hirelings are more of a way for you to like, okay, I need to hire somebody for this adventure, for this one-time thing, this session or whatever. Traveling but, to an area where you don't know the language, hire a scribe. They can right. do, they can translate. Right. So, you know, you need some muscle to, you know, you, you've been charged with protecting this caravan and you think man why don't we hire a couple extra guards here are the rules for it and it gives you ideas on how to do this i love that a lawyer is on there right yeah yeah so i'm glad there are well, rules and, for it and we've <laughs> talked at length about uh how important it is to be able to heal well if you can't you can hire a doctor they'll right. come with you for a week right. which is steep five gold crowns is not right. cheap I'm but gonna, at the same time i mean hiring a doctor is not going to, you know, it's not going to be cheap. It's going to cost money, but Hey, right. at least you won't die from all those bleeding conditions you have. Right. And I love how it gives notes. So a single visit costs four to six shillings for medical attention. And it talks about all of this stuff, but it also talks about, I don't want just a soldier or a scout. I want like an experienced soldier or scout. I want somebody that really knows. It tells you how to increase their costs, how to take the talents and increase stats using this way. It gives you rules. I'm not going to go over all of it. It's just a couple of paragraphs. It's very simple, very straightforward. So as a GM, this is an easy way for you to do that. Or as a player, if you know ahead of time you're going to want to hire someone, you can figure out exactly what the stats are, what you're going to want to hire, and, and kind of go from there. And it gives you a basic overall way right. to build this. Yeah. And it's elegant. I've used that word a few times today, yeah. but it's an elegant solution. Well, it's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Moving on. This brings us to the bestiary, which is really more of a reference in most cases for the different creatures and beings that you're going to come across while in the Reichland and while in the Warhammer world as a whole. One of the things that I can't stress enough, and I feel like we've said this so many times about this book, I'm going to keep saying it because it's always true. The art in this section is 
remarkable. Yes, and I want to say, I think I've told several people this to their face, but Cubicle 7, thank you so much for giving me a piece of artwork for every single entry. Please continue to do that. It seems like a little thing, but having looked through and read multiple different role-playing rule books, that's not always the case, and it's really unfortunate. I would rather have a smaller beastry section and have artwork for every piece so that I can get a sense of what they look like. Because not everybody has an idea. What is a goblin? Yeah, we all know right. what a goblin is. But you can, look you at can the different IPs. A Warhammer goblin is not the goblin from Harry Potter, right? Right. Well, and even even less than that, right? I can I can tell you you come across a zombie, right? You Anybody mm-hmm. can picture in their head what a zombie is. But if I say you come across uh, Vargulf. Right. What, what do you if you don't know Warhammer? What could you possibly picture? And right. even if I describe it, that doesn't do as good a job as just opening this book, covering the stats, perhaps if you don't right. want your players to know that, and showing them that picture. I can't stress it enough. A lot of what's in here is basic things, right? You shouldn't have to show a piece of art about what a troll or an orc is, but they do, right? And that's that's really important because there's role playing systems that I've looked at and played recently that don't, and it's a, a system that is not common. It's not talking about zombies, zombies and goblins and orcs. It's talking about fantastical creatures that you can't picture without a piece of art. And it's, if it's not there, it ruins it. I agree. It takes 100%. you out of it. So the fact that there's art and not, not just art and a stat block, sentence or two of flavor text, piece of art, stat block, traits, it's all here. Yeah. It's so thorough. It's well done. Well done. It's is very what well done. So these are all the good things I have to say about the beastry section. I will say, and I think I said this in, a, in one of our previous, when we did our initial quick run through of this, the beastry section, I, I wanted a tiny bit more. And what I'm hoping it's because we're going to get a book, a whole beastry book. And is it beastry or beastiary? I'm probably saying it wrong. I don't know. But beast section. The beast section, right? Call so, it chapter 12. Bad chapter dudes. Chapter 12. Bad dudes. <laughs> so anyway... They have rules in here on how to kind of random creature and NPC species and how to take them using careers to make them. So what you run into is with creature traits and stuff. How do I say this? It is not, again, this is a medium crunch system. So it is effective and it's very good. And there's a whole set of talents and stuff for just the NPCs. And then some of these talents are referenced in other places. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But they you kind of can build your own, like it gives a Reichlander human and basic stats, and then it can tell you how to kind of get some random stats and stuff on this as well. And it doesn't just give you the orcs, goblins, and dragons, right? It gives you bears, boars, things that you might find useful. Right. Pigeons, right? Yeah. Horses. Like things that, things, yeah. that everybody's going to know going into it, but it's it's here. Right, right. And it, it looks great. Man, even that skeleton, man, just uh, looks so good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's it's really well done. They did a great job with this section. They, I mean, they've set a precedent for themselves. I'm sure they have every intention of right. maintaining a high-quality product. So so what I'm hoping for, Cubic 7, if you're listening, for your actual full book, B-Siri, whatever we're going to call it, Slaughter Margins was one of the things that we had in second edition, which gave me an idea of how this, you know, whether this was weak or strong compared to a normal starting soldier character or whatever. I found that useful. I would like that, but not necessary, right? You'll learn the system enough. But Warhammer is so deadly. Me as a GM, it, it can be easy to overwhelm your players and not realize it. <laughs> so I just wanted to put that out there. Right. 
Uh, so next thing, the creature trait section. There's a lot, a lot of good stuff here too. I wanted to point out specific size. Size comes into play. Did you know halflings are small, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are actually a lot of rules that can come into effect with size. Like if you're defending against someone that's bigger or smaller. Stomp attack. Creatures that are two size levels above you get this free stomp attack. Can step on you. Right. And it's it's cool. So um, I'll be honest. There are more rules that I want to fiddle with on pure size than I'd like. But they all make total sense, you know. How- well, again, it, it's all it's all up to the the people you're playing with. You right. as the GM, the people you're playing with, decide how significant you want to make that. Keeping track of all these traits, it could slow mm-hmm. combat down to a standstill. Yes, which it, you don't want. Right. But you also don't want to omit this stuff because some of it's really interesting. Right. And as a GM, I would recommend until you start to memorize and learn them, minimize what you need. Right. Figure out the important ones. And then as you learn those, maybe you can start adding a little, some of the more flavorful stuff. But right. like some of this stuff is really important. Like, like some people are like, a dragon really isn't that powerful. When you take size rules into account, yes, it is. Yeah. What a dragon can do because of its size alone compared to your players and not even taking a stat block into account right. is insane. Like how hard it hits, how much damage it does on top of normal. And it's all right here yes. on this page. page so for a, drag- a dragon's wounds is its strength bonus plus two times its toughness bonus plus its willpower bonus all multiplied by eight. Right. It's a lot. It's crazy. And yep. the, the rules, the traits are in here. I guess my thing is, is as a GM, I felt a little overwhelmed when I started trying to figure out like an adventure and putting together, man, just some goblins, you know, and like, what does this mean? What does that mean? Look at all these traits. Look at these optional traits. And another thing a lot of people miss, there are standard optional traits at the beginning of this section, which a lot of people forget. So keep that in mind as well. Yeah. And then I guess we finished the book with a character sheet. Yeah. Which uh, should be online soon, hopefully, Cubicle 7. I know in that free adventure I'm waiting for as well, which should be. They said once the physical book gets to people, they're going to start seeing it. So I don't know if that's going to be the when the special edition physical book actually starts shipping, which is, they said is two weeks after. So it should be very soon, right. hopefully this coming week. Man, we are we, approaching almost two hours on this show. Yeah. Uh, it's It's been a long one. Yeah. It, it's it's good, though. We I, There's a lot of a lot of great stuff in here. You mentioned that there's a character sheet in the back of the book. Of course, there always right. is going to be. The index in here is great, too. Oh, I mean, it, it is. It is pages yes. and pages, and it's all there. It breaks it down. If you're missing a rule, if you're looking for something specific, then it's in there, and, and it makes it easy to find. We should probably also mention that on the, the very final page of this rule book is an advertisement for the Rough Nights and Hard Days, Can't which we've this. talked about before, but yeah. why not throw it in there? Right. You know, it's it's beautiful. It and the, the artwork looks good. And I can't wait to see all by Graham Davis and some blast from the past uh, adventures in there with tweaks. As, yeah. So I can't wait. So. Yeah. All right. We got to wrap this up, man. <laughs> That's Think, it. That's it. We came to the end. We made right. it through. We made it through. I, we really hope that you enjoyed reviewing this horror rule book with us. We've really enjoyed digging into it. And for putting up with this, especially this last episode, like approaching, we're approaching like hour and a half or two hours here. That is the end. That's the end of our show tonight. So again, thanks for joining us. We hope that you found fourth edition as exciting as we did and that you can get it to your table soon. And be sure to let us know how it goes when you finally do. And just to give you a heads up for our next episode, we we actually will continue having actual play sessions so you can continue to join Conrad, Otto, and Lynn. And we've talked about them a couple of times um, as they push their fate and fortune to the limit. And in our next discussion episode, I'm really excited to tell you guys, we're going to be doing our first show 
in a semi-regular series where we review the careers of 4th edition. With 64 careers in the core book alone, with more to come, there's lots to go through. So on our next discussion episode, we'll be starting with a few of our favorites. Uh, We've decided the Entertainer, the Noble, and the Huffer. So uh, be sure to join us for our next show. And uh, one other thing, too, we're going to be putting out a poll eventually for which other careers you guys want us to talk about next. Yep. So be look, be on the lookout. Those will be hitting like our social media sites and yep, stuff Twitter, as well. Twitter, Facebook. Speaking of that, keep in touch. We want you to give us questions. We want feedback. We want show topic suggestions. There's a lot of different ways you can contact us. Just make sure to check out our website, www.oldworldpodcast.com. On Twitter, we are at Old World Podcast and Facebook, facebook.com slash oldworldpodcast. Also, please let us know what you think. Visit iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast services and give us a rating. Every review helps us reach even more Warhammer fans. All right. Well, this is Lance saying good night, and may you still have a fate point left when your God calls you to account. This is Matt. Enjoy your events and endeavors between now and our next episode. This podcast and related website are completely unofficial and are not endorsed by Games Workshop Limited or Cubicle 7 Entertainment. It is intended for educational and informational purposes only. GW, Games Workshop, Warhammer, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, and all associated logos, illustrations, images, names, creatures, races, vehicles, locations, weapons, characters, and the distinctive likenesses thereof are registered trademarks of Games Workshop Limited, Cubicle 7 Entertainment, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast, including any audio or video information, is the intellectual property of the Old World Podcast and Crimson Tower Studios, LLC.